You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ascp.com/podcasts. ASCP: Empowering Pharmacists, Transforming Aging. Welcome to Senior Rx Radio. I am Dr. Jaron Stout, and I am Dr. Joanne Payo. We are your hosts of Senior Rx Radio. We are recording live at the 2021 ASCP conference in San Diego, California. Today we have Dr. Michaela Bartuka and Dr. Catherine Liu. They both presented the educational session titled Urine Good Hands, Updates in Clinical Management of Urinary Incontinence. Great title, by the way. (laughs) Who came up with that title? That would be me. All right. Well done, Michaela. Yes. Very punny. (laughs) (laughs) So just to start off, can you guys differentiate between the difference between incontinence and overactive bladder? Yes, definitely. So overactive bladder, generally its characteristics are when you have urgency, so a sudden urge to urinate. And whereas urinary incontinence, this would be considered, we often think about wet versus dry. Wet would indicate that there is a leakage generally of large amounts of urine secondary to that urgency that the patient feels. Dry just means that you you just have that sensation of urgency, but you are able to hold in the bladder, make it to the bathroom in time to urinate. And so we're not talking about BPH here. Uh, just to no, like, that was that's a separate topic here. Totally separate topic. Okay. We focused on urge throughout the, the presentation because that's where most of the clinical updates Absolutely. have been over the last year or so. Okay. And then when you think of urinary incontinence, you think it's just the patient has issues urinating and it stops there. But in your presentation, you also discuss that it's more of a dynamic issue with social implications. Can you explain Definitely. Yeah. So, you know, when a patient has concerns about needing to use the bathroom all the time, it certainly impacts their quality of life. You know, especially if they do have episodes of incontinence in which they have urinary leakage, they can be really embarrassing, you know, to be out in public. So sometimes patients may isolate themselves, have poor low self-esteem, and urinary incontinence is associated with a high rates of undiagnosed anxiety and depression just because of that embarrassment and low self-esteem. So there certainly are a lot of, you know, implications on someone's quality of life because of, you know, that urinary dysfunction. Absolutely. I remember as a student in pharmacy school, we had this public health course where we had to we had to help elderly people. You know, we we were sent to different organizations to, to do different things. One of the things I was sent to do was to help set up an elderly lady, just learn how to utilize her email. And it was very complicated to do that. But the the reason I bring this up is because while I was there, she had a problem with her bladder right in front of me. And it was mm-hmm. so devastating for mm-hmm. her to have that happen in front of somebody. And it, it was so embarrassing for her. But I, I mean, to me, I understood and I, it was not mm-hmm. a big deal, but took a lot to just keep her at ease, to let her realize that it wasn't a big deal, that I understand and it's okay. So I'm glad that you guys brought that up. So for patients who have urinary incontinence, how is it important to gather a a patient history? What's the biggest contributing factor there? Yes. So because there are different types of urinary incontinence, it's really important to understand the characteristics of that patient specifically. So certainly asking them 
one thing that you can utilize is actually called a bladder diary. And so patients can take this worksheet home. And essentially, every time that they feel the need to urinate, they go and they jot down whatever that experience may have been, maybe how often it was, the timing of it. So frequency, are they waking up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom, nocturia? Do they have a sudden urge? And was there, you know, an incontinence episode? And then additionally, you know, the voiding symptom. So was there hesitancy? Was there dribbling? Other components go into the bladder diary as well. So looking at the patient's lifestyle, asking them, what type of beverages do you drink? Are you drinking five cups of coffee per day? Are you drinking, you know, everybody loves that um, seltzer water right now, but those carbonated beverages can certainly impact increased urination. Same thing with sodas and sugary drinks and other comorbidities too. And then of course, as pharmacists, we're always evaluating a patient's medication list. So ensuring that they're not on medications that are going to you know, impact their urinary and they have dysfunction, exacerbate that. Absolutely. And just to add to that, so both Catherine and I did our pharmacy residencies, our PGY2s in geriatrics at the VA in Connecticut, which has a really good relationship with Yale Medical School. And one of the things that I learned working really closely with the medical residents and the medical fellows there is that a general review of systems that they are taught to do does not include some of the geriatric features, right? So part of that being assessment of urination and urinary incontinence. And so for us as geriatric pharmacists, you think about not everybody can be a specialist in geriatrics, right? Not everybody goes through the training, but we can teach people to be generalists. And as well, we, we both, I'm in a faculty role, Catherine has been in a faculty role, teaching our students that you can actually teach the other learners that you're working with, whether they're, they're medical residents or medical fellows or medical students, that part of doing a geriatric review of systems should include an assessment of urination, urinary patterns, what's happening at home. Is it preventing you from going out, doing the things that you want to socialize? So I think that that's a really important piece where pharmacists can also provide some education as well, especially those in this room and in this organization. Right. So just a quick follow-up question to that then. I'm just looking at the risk factors on your slides, right? One of them is a uh, chronic degenerative disease that impairs mobility. And yet mm -hmm. another one is obesity. So mm -hmm. is obesity because they become less mobile or is it because more of extra weight on the bladder or maybe a bit of both? Exactly. Yes. So generally with obesity, exactly as you mentioned, if they are morbidly obese, that can certainly impact their mobility and ability for access to the toilet, but then also if you have a lot of abdominal obesity because of that additional weight and pressure on the bladder, that increases the risk of stress incontinence in particular. Okay. When we were talking about the patient history, in your presentation, you actually mentioned the transgender population. Mm -hmm. Yes, so when thinking about our patients who are transgender, also being mindful that urinary incontinence can occur secondary to hormone therapy. So specifically for transgender patients who are on hormone therapy prior to sex reassignment surgery, for transgender women, because they're exposed to high levels of estrogen, that's when they have the shrinkage of the prostate that's causing the urge urinary incontinence. And then on the other side of it, for our transgender males, because they're exposed to high levels of testosterone, that actually increases the risk of atrophic vaginitis. And that is what causes stress incontinence. So really being mindful of our transgender patients, certainly asking them where are they in their process of transitioning and noting that hormones can certainly impact the urine function overall. Right. And to add to that, 
immediately following the presentation, we had probably the most questions related to transgender care. And I think there's a lot of senior care pharmacists who are seeking resources on this. We're seeing it more in our practice, whether you're in primary care or long-term care. How do you um, do an assessment for these individuals? How do you care for these individuals? And the truth is there are not a lot of resources yet. So even in preparation for this presentation, we were really relying on basically op-eds and commentary pieces and looking at what physicians who work in transgender care and um, urologic care, what, what are they encountering and what are they doing write-ups on in terms of their own experience. So in terms of, of literature, we're still limited, but there's, there's definitely a lot that's coming down the pipeline. There's a lot more of experience that's happening and, and integration into our day-to-day roles as senior care pharmacists. And so I think there's going to be more incorporation of these types of topics right across the board and all of the education that we see at ASCP as it starts to become an area that we're all encountering more and more and need more experience and education on. Very good. So, you know, and that's why you said it was very important for that patient history. So as a pharmacist, let's say in a community setting, how do we broach the topic to find out that patient history? Because a patient might not feel comfortable to just say it out loud or might not feel comfortable to explain I'm on hormone treatment. Absolutely. Starting with sort of the limitations in the medical record, right? So right now there is a designation, at least in in the medical record that I work in, you are identified as either a male or a female, and there is no option to select anything different than that. And so I think we need to start with the medical record and being more inclusive there. And that that allows your providers, whether it's a pharmacist or a medical doctor or social worker, whoever it may be that's reviewing your chart or involved in your care, to see you know, where, where you're identifying how to address different levels, different aspects of your care. And we, we actually spoke about this afterwards because we said it's coming up as well in renal care, right? We're talking about CKD and calculating creatinine clearance because sex is included in that calculation. And so how do we even teach our students how we're going to adopt that? Because a lot of it may be dependent on what you are designated at birth, but what exposure you might have to hormones, your body mass may change, your muscle mass may change looking at body habitus. And we know, right, with a little bit of experience that you can actually look at somebody's physical body and kind of gauge like how much mass that they might have on them in in order whether you want to kind of underestimate or overestimate that credit clearance calculation. And a lot of it comes with experience. How do we teach our students that? The answers we don't, those are answers we don't really have yet. But I think starting with the medical record being more inclusive is really how we're going to, you know, kind of start there. At the healthcare system that I work at, they've actually included that. Fantastic. So you have your yes. sex and then you also have your designated gender mm-hmm. as well. And I also think that it's important to to note that as pharmacists, we need to be asking our patients about any other medications that they could potentially be on, right? Mm-hmm. And and making sure that it's a non-judgmental tone. This is included in all aspects, right? We talk about over-the-counters, herbal supplements, everything like that. So we should also, you know, you know, making sure that patients, if they feel comfortable expressing if they're on hormone therapy and then certainly uh, approaching the subject in that way. Great. So what about behavioral interventions? What are some of the things we can do in that area? Excellent. So behavioral interventions, you know, one that automatically pops into mind are pelvic floor exercises or Kegel exercises. So yesterday during the session, we kind of did it all together as a group, which (laughs) I think everyone got a kick out of. And, you know, what's nice about it is that it is very private. Nobody knows that you're doing that. So with pelvic floor exercises, it, it is really key. It's important for not only 
women patients, but also male patients as well, especially because if you have a patient who has urinary incontinence and they're worried about that leakage, strengthening those bladder neck muscles will certainly help them be able to hold in the urine, right, until they have access to the toilet. So really ensuring that, you know, ideally doing those pelvic floor exercises, even if it's just you know, a set of 10 twice a day. And then what I had recommended is really associating it with a routine activity that a patient does. So maybe that's brushing your teeth, you know, ideally, hopefully you're doing that twice a day. So you could just do it simultaneously at the same time. And then this allows patients to really incorporate that into their lifestyle. Yeah. And I think another aspect that gets overlooked when you do that is, I mean, yeah, it's strengthening that muscle, but in order for that muscle to strengthen, it has to increase the blood flow to that area and more nutrient delivery. And so you're just kind of regenerating and re- getting recirculated the blood flow to that area. So it, it helps a lot. So Exactly. And in some aspects, it also gives patients more confidence and more yeah. ability to feel like they have control over their disease, right? Rather than being passive about everything, you know, giving them an intervention that they're able to act on. It's like going to the gym, you know, and strengthening that muscle. So for your behavioral interventions, you also mentioned bladder retraining. Let's say we have a patient and none of this is working, like none of the behavioral interventions are working. What's next? So they've failed bladder retraining. They failed everything. So then in that case, really starting to think about pharmacotherapy. So because we focused on urge urinary incontinence, we talked in particular about the two main medication classes, antimuscarinics and then the beta-3 agonists. There are select patients who, you know, if they fail those therapies or should they choose, they can consider Botox. But within the scope of our lecture, we weren't able to discuss that. And then what's some of the adverse effects associated with the anti-muscarinic options for our our patients and elders? So anti-muscarinics are well known to us as senior care pharmacists, right? And we tend to go (gasps) when we see them on on our patient's medication list. And, you know, unfortunately, the medications just don't work as well as we would like them to. For most patients, your urge urinary incontinence episodes end up being reduced by about one to two episodes per day, which may be impactful for a patient. And so that impact, that benefit may end up actually outweighing some of the adverse effects. The the major adverse effects of concern are anticholinergic. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on the radio, but my favorite one that I teach my students is can't pee, can't see, can't spit, can't. S-H-I-T, because it tends to be a little bit more, just it kind of sticks in your memory. There's also, and see, I forget it, but it's blind as a bat, red as a beat, mad as a hatter, and I'm missing some pieces of it. But you kind of think of drying patients out, causing that Mm -hmm. confusion, causing that urinary retention, that blurred vision. For patients that have glaucoma, for patients who have underlying dementia, underlying urinary retention, comorbid BPH possibly where they have some obstruction, they just tend to be bad drugs. You know, we think of them as kind of being the culprits of, of patients who develop, might develop delirium or have frequent falls. But I can tell you, I also have patients who say, you can take anything away, but don't take my oxybutynin. And mm-hmm. even it's like your number one thing that you want to take away. So there are patients that do get enough benefit, whether it is clinically significant to us as, as practitioners. Sometimes it's not, but for the patient, sometimes it is because it lets them get out one time during the day to go to church or to go to a, a grandchild soccer game or, or do lunch with friends or whatever it might be, you know? And so sometimes it may overweigh some of those adverse effects. And so you might, you just really want to focus on minimizing that anticholinergic burden and having as few medications that are causing those adverse effects as possible and using more selective agents whenever possible, using extended release formulations, trying to do our best as pharmacists 
to minimize the adverse effects to you know prescribe and use medications as safely as possible. Absolutely, well said. And you know, I think for a, maybe like a two year span, I felt like I was starting to become numb to anticholinergic agents because I just felt like I was getting such low response from providers regarding that. But recently, I've just kind of revived the topic. And then I went on to the anti, I don't know if you guys watched the Apex event with anticholinergic burden just back in late September, but being on that panel, talking with everyone about it, revitalized my, my passion for anticholinergic burden. But I think that it's often overlooked as an agent that's contributing to several of the factors that we're trying to treat with more agents Absolutely. and the cascading effect. Mm -hmm. So where do you think that the beta-3 agonists fall in the order of treatment nowadays? In closing. So the, the newest agent, Vibegron, the way that they studied that medication in comparison to, to Mirabegron or Mirabetric is the, the brand name for that one, which has been around for, you know, about, what, 2012, I think it was approved. So that's kind of the, the more familiar agent for everybody. And it was sort of an end of one for a really long time. And it was sort of this out of reach medication, very high cost, mm -hmm. doesn't really provide much additional benefit. We weren't sure. But, but it was a good option for patients who are really seeking therapy, but that maybe have some adverse effects or you're concerned because they have comorbid dementia or cognitive impairment that you don't want to worsen. So it's something you can get, but, you know, it, again, access is, is often a problem for these agents. By Begron, actually, the way that they studied their drug in comparison to Mirabegron is they looked at it not just in comparison to placebo, but they looked at it in comparison to tolteridine, which is an antimuscarinic. What they ended up finding was it worked a bit better than tolteridine in that 65 and older group, but that it also had lower rates of adverse effects. Exactly. Which kind of puts it right on par with these beta-3 agonists where you could go one way or the other. And it kind of really makes us start to, to have this conversation of we may want to start going with these medications first, seeing that they do show similar efficacy with better tolerability. The key factor there is always going to be access and cost. And that's sort of continuing to be the, the limiting factor to using them. I think that we're going to continue to see that over the next couple of years as well. Unfortunately, most of our patients have Medicare and Medicare does not allow the application of the, the coupons where you get you know so many months mm -hmm. for lower cost to really see if these agents are worthwhile, if they're working for a patient or not. If you work in a VA system or a PACE where you may not have the formulary restrictions, they, they probably are a good option depending on what insurer the patient has and, and access depending on the health system. So yeah, we're kind of looking at two first-line options at this point and really just looking at patient-specific factors, cost, pill burden, considering all of those when we select. Yeah. And just one last thing about that. I mean, Mirabgron has a higher incidence of possible hypertension associated with it, whereas right. so far, Vibegron looks Vibegron, pretty good. Yeah, it looks great right. in that factor, not increasing that factor. So yeah. Yep. as well as the CYP2D6 interactions, which um, right, yeah, which can right. occur with Mirabegron. So you can see for for drugs that are metabolized by CYP2D6, so thinking metoprolol is one I mm -hmm. tend to think of. You can see increased concentration of those drugs in combination with Mirabegron. So just monitoring for you know heart looking looking for any bradycardia that might happen in combination where Vibegron doesn't have that. And actually what we saw with the combination therapy of Mirabegron and Solfenacin, mm -hmm. that's really where the trials of combination therapy have been around those two agents, the Mirabegron and the Solfenacin. And there's some thought that the reason that we see a little bit of a bump in improvement versus monotherapy alone with those two is because the Mirabegron actually inhibits metabolism a bit of the Solfenacin. So yeah. are we seeing a little bit of benefit because we're getting a little extra anti-muscarinic burst with that. And 
you know, kind of unknown at this point, but that's that's kind of the theory behind that is it's due to the 2D6 interaction. Great. Yeah. Very well said. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was very, very fun to have you guys talking about urine and, and bladders. So <laughs> thank you. Thanks for good hands. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for having thank us. Thank you. Anytime. You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ASCP.com slash podcasts. ASCP, empowering pharmacists, transforming aging.